Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, delegates, all to the Delegation Game episode 4. If you want to plug yourself into this Delegation Game and make a difference yourself, make sure to sign up by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and for $6 a month you too can shape this alternative version of history. Is it better than what we actually got in the end? Well... You'll just have to wait and see. It's early days yet, but there's some seriously exciting things going on. That again, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Punch your passport, your visa, your ticket or what have you and start playing the delegation game today. So I hope you're still with us after last week's harrowing ordeal, which saw three esteemed delegates bite the dust and usher in a new era of mourning, as well as a new era of suspicion and pain. We will still be dealing with the fallout from that horrific incident, and we will now be operating from the Hotel Zachary, rather than that shabby French hole which was the Hotel Twomley. Boo, Hotel Twomley, boo. 
As usual, we have to get through a small bit of housekeeping before rushing into the show, so let me begin by saying we have no new delegates to join us this week, although one just joined just before we started recording, so he'll be factored in next week, and you'll have to wait to see what that surprise is next time. But this does not at all mean that the week has been quiet. You've been more active than ever in those chat groups, and there's been a great deal of partisanship, and not as much active policy making as before. Interestingly, it would seem that the untimely deaths of three of your colleagues traumatised the cohort of delegates present in Paris, and made them more likely to attack one another over telegrams than actually propose policy. In spite of the urgent pleas of Woodrow Wilson, for instance, the delegates failed to submit a revised version of the League of Nations, even though they had voted to accept the League only with conditions. Wilson will be outraged, but there is still a week to go before D-Day, so make sure and get your proposals in over this week and help to make your mark upon the League by having your say. Another of the Paris Peace Conference's more famous developments in real life was the creation of the mandates system. But you voted to reject mandates, and some even voted to condemn Lloyd George for bringing up such an idea. This rejection means that both Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson will be very peeved indeed. How will the developing world now be governed? Surely it won't be left to its own devices. Do the delegates have even more sinister plans for these lands than their real-life counterparts? Well, we shall have to see. I've also received the results of your guys' vote on time taken during this game. The answers on this kind of survey were widely varied, with most votes by a majority of one saying that they'd like to take every fourth week off from this, with the next most popular vote saying to leave things as they are. For the record, I'm going to begin this trend by taking the weekend of Friday the 22nd of February off, so in other words, in two episodes' time, so rather than week six or episode six coming out as normal, there'll be a break and episode six will come out the following week. Because I'll be on a small holiday, so it suits me to have a little break, basically. Perhaps when I come back, we may run the poll on taking a break again, but then again, if nobody super objects, I might just work it so that we have every fourth week off anyway. Somebody suggested in the additional feedback comments section that I could write up a summary episode each week when we're not releasing a new episode. And I do appreciate that idea, but... Don't forget, it kind of defeats the purpose of having that week off. I'm not going to lie, guys, it's been pretty much go, go, go since the return from Christmas. And while I do absolutely, genuinely love doing all of this, and it warms the cockles of my heart to see you all scheming horribly against one another in a really weird way, between starting the expanded responsibilities in university and this and the Versailles anniversary project, which don't forget I still have to research, write, record and edit as well, that's gotten very intense the last few days too, I would really be happy for a breather every now and then. I was also given the idea of releasing some kind of compendium of bits of feedback from you guys, in that the delegates themselves would propose bits for me to read in the form of bulletins, which gave some brief news about what their delegate was up to. Sort of like you contact me with things that you want me to read out or things that your delegate said or got up to, and I'll literally combine them all into an episode. It would be a fun episode, but again... This sort of defeats the purpose of having a break, but then again again, as generous Dinglebrush would say, if you can't join him, make sure you beat him. No wait, that's not right. Make sure you stick around at the end as your weekly voting challenge for the following week, and make sure you do vote this time because it seems like a whole third of you are missing out on that perk. It also seems that there's a lot of you that aren't actually participating all that much, which I guess maybe you're just listening to the episodes every week, 
but let me know. Do contact me if you'd like to add in anything. Don't stay completely silent. If the scheming isn't your thing, don't stay a complete stranger either. A final bit of clarification, these episodes will be coming out every Saturday, as you can see, because this episode's coming out on Saturday, and the final closing date for all proposals, schemes, polls, etc., is now moved to Friday morning at 9am GMT. Please do not make me chase you down for these details. If it's a scheme, please send me the details privately, and if it's a proposal, then can I ask that someone please be responsible for sending me the details of it too. I will be rolling on these developments, these schemes and these proposals. If it affects someone, if it's not very likely to pass in real life, or even if it is likely to pass in real life, I still do have to roll on it. So please do send me the details of this stuff, as I put it in the hands of the odds gods. For the sake of my own records, it is really valuable to have a handy way to track everything that's happening. And what I've started to do is put up a little post in the Delegation Game Delegates group, where you guys can literally each week say what's relevant or what's not relevant. I might abandon that idea if you guys are happy to just talk amongst yourselves in the chat, but I think it is handy to have a place where all the new or relevant stuff can be gathered together. In any case, if you weren't aware, you can access the Excel spreadsheet containing details of who's who in the Patreon post for each episode. In other words, where you used to get the script for each episode, you can now get the script alongside the Excel spreadsheet. I used to upload it each week to the Facebook every week that it changed, but this is almost easier to do because I'm uploading the script anyway, so hey, I might as well upload the spreadsheet as well. So I think that'll all be it. I think we're also pleasantly surprised to note that I don't have any more housekeeping to announce, and we can just get into it. Without any further ado, I'll now take you to a rather sombre scene. The Remembrance Ceremony, the second Remembrance Ceremony in two weeks, of Mr. Joseph Doherty on the 7th of February, 1919. The Hotel Zachary's Great Hall was packed to the rafters with guests and delegates of all kinds. The funeral had just taken place that morning of Mr. Joseph Doherty, and now the remembrance ceremony followed. It was the second such ceremony in as many weeks, and though some people objected to doing this whole thing pretty much all over again, others were of the opinion that since the first ceremony had been conducted in such an atmosphere of trauma and numbness, and since Sir Robert Borden in particular had missed out on the occasion, the decision was made a week later to give everyone in Paris a chance to properly say goodbye, and in particular to give Sir Robert Borden a chance to say goodbye to his good friend. Considering these emotive arguments, how could anyone have refused such an appeal? Borden was given the floor, and as he performed a passionate, rousing speech which so effectively honoured the late Doherty's memory, it was impossible to ignore the fact that around the room in this great hall, the different delegations did not sit still. They continued even now, even at this sombre stage, to scheme and to whisper, amongst themselves. The nerve of those Poles to even show their faces, snarled President Roosevelt to the well-dressed, bespectacled man seated next to him. Walter Cameron nervously fixed his glasses and made his best effort at a whisper. Mr. President, Cameron said, surely we cannot blame all the Poles for the actions of one of their number? I don't know. Roosevelt replied. I think I can manage it.
At that, Roosevelt glared across the room at the corner where the Poles were sitting. They were notably dishevelled and evidently self-conscious, uncomfortably looking around the room. Paderewski's PR campaign had papered over some cracks during the week, but there still remained much to be done. Roosevelt's piercing stare connected with one Pavel Lebova, who looked away quickly. Pilsudski stared resolutely forward, while Paderewski himself appeared to be literally rocking back and forth with nervous anxiety, but perhaps Cameron was only imagining that. Walter Cameron did hate to see the Poles be put under so much pressure. Nothing could be done under these circumstances. No cooperation would ever be possible, so long as the Poles were persona non grata. Even though the prospect terrified him, Walter Cameron made a mental note to go over to the Poles once the ceremony was over. Why do we even need to be here? Cameron heard William Randolph Hearst whisper behind him. Doherty had his memorial last week. How many more days must we drag this business out? Have some respect, Hearst, Joseph Zahn hissed. It is critically important that we show solidarity to our fellow North Americans during this terrible time. Hearst seems to have been pained by the rebuke. Perhaps he wasn't used to being spoken to like that. He found that he lacked much of the personable qualities of his fellow American delegates. Even Roosevelt, who could be cold at times, seemed to have a way with people. And that was the problem. People in general just seemed to annoy William Randolph Hearst, but in a weird way, the very fact that they annoyed him made him so much money. Because he couldn't stand them. He couldn't stand their proclivities. But thanks to these proclivities, he was a very rich newspaper salesman. Rich, but not so rich that he should have to buy Roosevelt a drink every night. Hearst felt once more like sulking. Teddy really seemed content to lord the whole president thing over them each and every night. Out of the whole delegation, perhaps only Bruce Pug was on a similar level, and that only made Pug slightly more tolerable than the rest. By far the most similar to Hearst was Oliver Flanagan, that rich oil baron with an enormous ego and chip on his shoulder to match. Hearst wondered if he found Flanagan the most insufferable because he was the most like him. Flanagan had made his money in oil, but Hearst told himself that his fortune was the more savoury kind, because it had true utility. Really though, Hearst didn't care for savoury sources of income, he only cared about the size of that income, and he could outspend all of these Americans if he wanted if not for the absurd regulations which said that all delegates had to live and work in the same hotel, he would have moved to the more exotic sections of Paris weeks ago. The six-man American delegation had great potential, but its delegates were poles apart in terms of outlook and personality. Walter Cameron had gravitated towards Joseph Zahn in recent days. He was the more respectful, sensible of the group, and Walter Cameron believed he could find common ground with Zahn on several issues including questions of reparations and economics. Zahn was said to be somewhat pro-German, but also pro-Wilson to a degree, and this recommended Zahn to Cameron, because Cameron had been brought to Paris for a purpose after all, that purpose being to help draft the financial terms of the final treaty with the Germans. Perhaps Zahn's input was exactly what Cameron needed? He at least knew that he needed to stay away from those self-important types like Flanagan and Hearst, He found himself unable to stomach Roosevelt for all that long either. The man's intense hatred for Wilson seemed to have been placed above all other considerations, even the peace of the world. Bruce Pug had fallen in line with the former president, so it seemed, and the two could often be seen dining together. 
Pug was also an active drafter of policy. He had recently talked Cameron's ear off about the latest proposal he had created for defending Hungary from Bolshevik revolution. Thanks to his activism, thousands of guns and crates of ammunition were en route to Hungary, escorted by that black widow, Lady Nora Chalk. The black widow, Cameron sighed. It was not enough that that poor woman had been through the worst which this conference had to offer. She also had to deal with the rumour mill churning on behind her back. With some claiming that she assassinated Mihai Karoli herself to facilitate some kind of right-wing takeover in Budapest. Notwithstanding the circumstances of his death, Hungary's government had requested that Lady Nora accompany Karoli's remains back to Hungary, and Mr. Pug had taken the opportunity to arrange for a large arms shipment to accompany that man's coffin. It was sometimes impossible to get Pug to stop talking about his hatred for the Reds, and Pug had told Cameron that this act of handing Hungary all these guns had preempted any Bolshevik danger which was aimed at Hungary's throat. Walter Cameron could not say he was convinced at this. How could any people on earth look at what was happening in Russia as a result of the Bolshevik virus and believe that it looked like a good idea, something that they should try out themselves? Speaking of which, Cameron scanned the room and there he was, Alexander Kerensky, the Russian candidate and former premier. Kerensky had committed to the creation of some kind of anti-Bolshevik league in the future, and he continued to advise Woodrow Wilson on the best course of action to take vis-à-vis Russia. There were rumblings which suggested that Kerensky planned to pull in any favours he could muster to make this anti-Bolshevik league a possibility, and Pug's recent activism had drawn the heaped praise of this Russian Democrat. Bruce Pug, it was said, thanks to his friendship with Kerensky, now had some secret window into Eastern politics, and he was rumoured to have learned a great deal from his conversations with Kerensky about what the Poles and Italians were truly up to together. Perhaps, Walter Cameron mused, all of this was true. Or then again, perhaps it was just the rumour mill working overtime yet again. A few rows back, two Italians were seated together. Be patient, Vittorio Orlando whispered to his Sicilian peer. We can talk to Paderewski later this evening, for now we must keep up appearances. Sir, Bonifacio Fidel whispered, I am quite sure that our cover has been blown. Whatever do you mean? Orlando asked. It was the Serbian, Fidel replied. I had hoped that he would be able to keep a secret, but now the cat is truly out of the bag and Italy's role in pushing for the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement has been thoroughly exposed. Just how exposed are we? Orlando asked, with some desperation creeping into his voice. Well, sir, we are certainly less exposed than the Poles, that's for sure, but that isn't saying much. Regrettable though this state of affairs is, I believe we should embrace this status and work to recruit like-minded allies to our cause. The Big Three seems to have built up Many false impressions regarding our intentions for the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement. Perhaps a strong PR campaign would persuade them of their false impressions. Orlando was evidently distracted, as his eyes focused at the Canadian on stage in front of him. Very well, Orlando said. If they will not give Italy guarantees, then Italy will find some for herself. Uh, Have we got Venezuelos? Monsieur Venizelos will happily talk about IFTA, Fidel began. 
if Orlando sighed with expectation. Yes, if. If we support his country's claims on Cyprus and commit to defending Greek interests in Asia Minor. That blasted Greek, Orlando exclaimed. He'll be asking us for Constantinople next. Tell him I'll talk to him tonight if you see him. I will, sir, Fidel replied. And by the way, I was wondering, what of Mr. Weizmann? The Zionist? Yes, sir, Fidel replied. Perhaps we would do well by working with him. He does not seem to have many like-minded friends at Paris. Perhaps we could come to some arrangement? Orlando weighed the idea in his mind. Fidel was probably up to something, but then Orlando had learned long ago that Bonifacio Fidel was always up to something, so best to let him at it. This brilliant but rash underling of his had effectively imagined the Interarium Free Trade Agreement into being, propelling Italy to the forefront of the conference in the process, but such an act hadn't exactly made her popular. Still, there wasn't much point in being popular when you couldn't get what you wanted. Make a deal with Weizmann, Orlando said, and make sure we don't get carried away this time. A few rows forward from this Italian discussion, two Brits were seated together. The Prime Minister will be furious, Fitzwilliam remarked. I think he was certain that the mandate's idea would be approved of. Indeed, Artie, it is odd, Tancred replied, in a somewhat louder voice than Arthur Fitzwilliam believed was appropriate, considering the fact that the Canadian Prime Minister was pouring out his heart on stage. But apparently unforeseen factors were to blame. He seemed to be shouting now. The man was outvoted, an unusual situation indeed, but now what? Should we let these peoples, some of whom are quite barbaric, simply rule themselves? What good is the victory if the people of the world do not receive its many blessings? I have considered making a proposal for Britain to withdraw into its empire and go into business for itself, against the interests of its former allies if necessary. Arthur Fitzwilliam stared at Sir Alistair Tancred, the man who had just made this rather loud and very revealing speech. Alistair, you cannot be serious. Mad as he is now, Lloyd George would never count on such an inflammatory scheme as conspiring against our allies. Suddenly, Sir Alistair Tancred's voice was reduced to the lowest of whispers. I know that, Artie, but look around you. There's spies everywhere now, and nobody is safe. I thought for sure it would work out some way to rally the West around its defensive commitments, but the fates were apparently not with us. And also, Tancred looked briefly to his left, I think that daft Belgian is taking notes on what we're saying, so I want to lead him on a bit. Arthur Fitzwilliam nearly looked over his shoulder before Tancred urged him, Don't turn around, Artie. I want to see that dolt get another thrashing from the Prime Minister before I leave this blasted city. Did you hear he's being ennobled by the King of Belgium? Do you know what I had to do to become Sir Alistair? A whole lot more than that pompous fool, that's for sure. Out of the corner of his eye, sure enough, Arthur Fitzwilliam could see Dinglebrush, notebook in hand, trying to appear as innocent as ever. Fitzwilliam sighed. It was never a dull moment so long as he sat with Sir Alistair Tancred, ever since the first day when the two men had pranked the Newfoundland delegate on such an epic scale. He'd even seen a smile form on the face of that Japanese baron, though Nabuwaki would surely slice him if he told anyone so. Speaking of Arthur McCauville, where the devil had that man got to? They had called it a truce on the whole pranking exercise, hadn't they? 
Fitzwilliam suddenly felt his stomach lurch. This would hardly be an appropriate place for any more embarrassing gaffes. Poor old Doherty, Fitzwilliam thought. Taken by Bronsky, that crazed pole. Bronsky the Mad, they were already calling him. But then Sir Alistair Tankred had said that they should have called him Bronsky the Absinthe-Minded, since he had apparently downed enough of that stuff to tranquilise a horse, or so Bronsky's friend Mr. Lebova had said. Oddly, Lebova had not tried to stop him. No matter. It was good to be away from the Hotel Twomley, and to be in lodgings more befitting for delegates of their stature. Did you hear about Kerensky? Tankred whispered. Of course I did, replied Fitzwilliam. Well, Tankred said, how did you hear about him? Same as you, I suspect, through Mr. Kerensky himself, Fitzwilliam fired back. The poor, isolated Russian delegate was caught between several rocks and even more hard places, and unfortunately for him, he had little in the way of leverage. Maybe we just ought to welcome some kind of Bolshevik to Paris, Tankred whispered. He and Kerensky could fight it out in a winner-take-all, and we could stop pretending to care about the Russians. Come now, Alistair, you don't mean that. Maybe a bit harsh, I know, Alistair Tankred replied. But we can never solve the Russian problem without actually relevant Russians in front of us. Kerensky doesn't even represent the whites. Fitzwilliam had to admit that his colleague had a point. Much as his heart bled for the exiled Russian, there was little Kerensky could do so long as Russia was so divided into a patchwork of different blocs, few of them, if any, supporting Kerensky all that effectively. Fitzwilliam told himself that he would still meet with Kerensky the next day, as he had promised. A few seats away to the left, generous Dinglebrush sat, accompanied by a very impatient Belgian foreign minister, Paul de Mons, who planned to be out of Paris within a few hours to meet with his king. Mr. Dinglebrush, would you please stop scribbling? Imons sighed, as patiently as he could manage. It had been a busy past few days, and he was not in a mood for his colleague's antics. Mr. Imons, please allow me to explain. What you have here is a legitimate, foolproof method for exposing those dastardly British delegates once and for all. All it requires is a healthy respect for the art of eavesdropping and... Mr. Dinglebrush, Imons interrupted as politely, again, as he could. Please do tell me more about your reported honours, which His Majesty will soon grant. Dinglebrush's face filled with pride, and he began for the third time to explain the wonderful news that King Albert of Belgium would soon be awarding Dinglebrush a hereditary title in honour of his great service rendered to Belgium in Paris. I don't know what took His Majesty so long, Dinglebrush exclaimed though I suspect it has something to do with the fear that he may lose me and that I may retire to my new estates and refrain from attending this conference any longer. His Majesty need not worry. I would never let him down at a time like this. Of course, this had been the plan all along. Paul Mons had pulled in every favour to get this title granted to Dinglebrush, and according to the terms within the letter which Dinglebrush had already signed and not really read, it was declared to be most impolitique and even rude for a man of his newly acquired high rank to get down and dirty with the politicians of Paris, for as a newly ennobled Belgian, he was said to be above such antics. Pauli Mons was still preparing his surprised face for when Dinglebrush finally realised that this loophole existed. In the meantime, the insufferable Belgian 
had to be kept away from literally everyone until they returned home. The shame. His colleagues have been calling him Inkbrush behind his back after Dinglebrush's unfortunate penchant for repeatedly pouring inkwells onto other statesmen. Imons thought the stories were probably exaggerated, but he did not wish to ask Dinglebrush about it, for obvious reasons, and a part of him suspected that the stories were probably true. Imons noted that once more, Dinglebrush's face was all scrunched up, and he was leaning towards the British delegates. His intense, listening face was on display again. Where had Dinglebrush even managed to find such a brightly coloured waistcoat? Imons sighed again. How had he been saddled with this dolt? After all he had done for Belgium, the mark of a true quality statesman was to sit confidently in his success, and he had achieved some considerable successes. Imons recalled to himself how Siam, Newfoundland and Japan had all been courted and appeased. Food shipments had already arrived in Antwerp from Siam in return for finished goods from the Congo, and similar agreements with Japan. Rubber, indeed, was something which the Japanese wanted in abundance, and which the Congolese seemed to be all too willing to give up. Imons was confident that any tales of brutality from local Belgian officials were exaggerated. All of these arrangements opened up Belgium to new Asian markets, and it did not harm to link Belgian interests to a British dominion, especially one represented by such a sharp delegate as Mr. McCulville. While he could find solace in these achievements, babysitting this absurd man-child was becoming exhausting, and yet he could not abandon his gentlemanly patience, lest he should expose himself to ridicule. Patience was a virtue, but it was also a skill. Still, though, within a few hours, himself and Dinglebrush would be making the journey to Brussels, and he would be leaving Dinglebrush where he belonged. This trip could not come soon enough. Charles Shear did not mind standing near the back of the room, and he would not dare to complain after the week he'd had. It seemed that the French truly were determined to swallow Alsace-Lorraine whole, and they were willing to evict him from Paris altogether to achieve this. He'd always been told to watch his blood pressure, but he had felt the last few days very heavily indeed. He wasn't sleeping well, and his doctor had recommended several days' rest back in Strasbourg. Charles admitted that he was certainly looking forward to it, He couldn't wait to see the back of Paris, and to come back stronger than ever to fight for his people. Perhaps by the time he returned, the two belligerent Frenchmen would be taken down a peg, and part of his work would be done for him. He didn't know how, but Charles Scheer found himself making a sort of vow to preserve through whatever means the autonomy of all Alsatians. They had taken his land, but the identity of Alsace-Lorraine would not be forgotten or subsumed. Charles Shear chanced a wave at the cloud of cigarette smoke that was seated only a few feet away from him. Karhu Rosnak, delegate for Slovenia, waved a smoky hand back. Perhaps if he took up cigarettes, Shear mused, then his heart and digestion would thank him for it. It seemed to work a treat for Rosnak, though his chest infection appeared to have returned with regular coughing fits whenever the Slovenian became particularly animated or simply came into contact with Nikola Pesic. Pesic was also seated nearby Rosnak at all times. It was as if the organisers of the conference had schemed to ramp up the tension deliberately, or maybe they simply believed that because both men hailed from roughly the same geographic region of Europe, they had to be friendly to one another. Charles Shear was able to remember at that point several instances of arrogance which some of his European delegates had displayed. 
Once a poll had asked him where in the Commonwealth Alsace was. When Charles had protested, the poll had shrugged and claimed that Alsace sounded Polish. Thankfully, that poll had not decided to destroy two other men's lives in the aftermath. Bronski the absent-minded, Charles Shear scoffed. He had to admit that that was a good one, distasteful though it certainly was. Imagine the Canadian Premier's horror if he could hear their gossip when all were meant to be present to honour his friend. The intrigue, as Charles Shear had learned long ago, never seemed to stop. Seated diagonally, a few metres away from Charles Shear, two very different looking men were seated. Really, Mr. McKay, it is impolite to stare, Prince Sharif had whispered to the Australian delegate. The Bedouin warrior's striking appearance and smooth use of English had startled the Australian former soldier and reminded him that not all Arabs were necessarily savages. Many had in fact fought against the Turk, just as the Australians had done after all. David McKay felt somewhat apprehensive. He was almost certain that he owed the prince a drink from a while back, although the details were somewhat hazy, living in the Hotel Twomley for so long. Prince Navoir Sharif was definitely wealthy, and definitely had some critically important contacts. That was how he had arrived here in the first place, and it explained everything from his confidence, to his fine clothes, to his skill with languages. This was an educated Arab, the kind of Arab of whom Britain was said to be most afraid. McKay found it still somewhat difficult to let the previous snub go. Behind his back, the British, Germans and Japanese had partitioned New Guinea up among themselves, without so much as a thought for Australia. Still, there was much to be done, and it was entirely possible that Prince Sharif could be of use. Suddenly, McKay realised that he had yet to respond to the prince's earlier comment. You are quite right, sir, McKay whispered. I just cannot help myself. Where does a man find such a bright waistcoat in a city like this? The Arab grinned back at him. My friend, deep down every man has his own style. It is just that not everyone chooses to flaunt it like Mr. Dinglebrush. McKay was impressed. Sharif had even taken the time to learn the name of a fool like Generous Dinglebrush. Perhaps he could be of use after all, but for what? Well, there was time enough to figure that out. Prince Sharif, McKay began. What say I return your earlier favour from the other day and buy you that drink? You are most generous, my friend, Navor smiled. But it will have to be a soda water only, as us people of the faith must not touch alcohol. McKay was surprised again. He had heard the rumours, but he could not have been certain. This man was intelligent and devout. The two things in his experience did not tend to go hand in hand. McKay gestured a few seats across to his left at Edward Benesch, the Czech delegate, who seemed lost in conversation once more with Alexander Kerensky. As McKay gestured towards the Czech statesman, Benesch held up a hand for McKay to be quiet, the rude so-and-so that was the last time he ordered him dinner. Looking to his right then, McKay spotted Venizelos staring into space. Did he even understand what Sir Robert Borden was saying? The Canadian Premier was making a good speech, but he must have known that there were few in attendance who were in the mood to hear it. Everyone felt exhausted and demoralised, like they needed a holiday before going any further. McKay gestured at Venizelos, and the Greek Premier shuffled out of his seat towards him. A random typist moved out of the way so that the Greek Premier could sit down. Monsieur David McKay? Venizelos whispered. 
in a tone that suggested he had answered some kind of question. Perhaps the Greek Premier had been thinking about Australia while staring into space? Thank you, sir, McKay began. I wished merely to ask if you'd heard any rumours regarding the delegate Kerensky. McKay knew that, of course, Venizelos had, because Kerensky's leakages were becoming the worst-kept secrets in Paris. By probing in this way, though, perhaps the Greek Premier would reveal something which McKay did not already know. Venizelos paused. Had Kerensky let it slip that Russia would support Greek claims to Cyprus, or that she would furnish troops if possible? It was unlikely that the Russian would tell this random Australian, decorated though he was. So Venizelos tread carefully, preferring to take the focus off himself somewhat. I heard Kerensky has been making regular visits to those two Frenchmen, René Massigli and Albert Clavel. He also has been seen fraternising with the Polish pariahs, and even was allowed to hold the sword of one Baron Nabuwaki. God knows where Kerensky will pop up next, or what he is indeed up to, but Mr. McKay, I fear we would all be wise to guard our secrets for now. McKay nodded politely in response. So he was right then. The crafty Greek premier was hiding something, and he was certainly unlikely at this stage to find out what. It was far from the most conventional of alliances, but Chaim Weizmann believed that the two Asian delegates might be precisely what he was looking for. It was well known that Baron Nabuwaki and Prince Charun of Siam had forged a close working relationship, embodied in their earlier joint proposal for mutual friendship and commerce. The agreement had made the British and Americans nervous, which Weizmann suspected had been at least a secondary aim of the proposal. He had been painfully rebuffed by Lord Balfour the previous week, after taking the opportunity to propose his scheme for a Jewish settlement in Palestine. It was time, Weizmann said, to fulfil the promises of the Balfour Declaration, but Balfour himself had not seen it that way, and he hurriedly excused himself from Weizmann's presence. Subsequent efforts to secure meetings with the British Foreign Secretary had been unsuccessful, and Weizmann was beginning to wonder why Balfour had bothered to issue his declaration at all. Some said it was simply an inopportune time, and that Balfour would reach out to Weizmann when he was able to give him his full attention. Others believed that Weizmann should go his own way, around the Foreign Secretary, and make new contacts. Weizmann believed he had already made one valuable ally in that famed IFTA bloc, but this support was conditional of Weizmann's declaration of support for that bloc's goals. Weizmann was admittedly unsure of that bloc's goals, or why the current standoff with the Western powers had become so heated as of late. Weizmann had not investigated, because he did not care, but he was concerned that now he would have to wade knee-deep into these rivalries if his life's work was to be fully realised. Choosing between the West, or this vague conception of the East, was an impossible choice to make, since he had allies in both sides. Perhaps, as the rumours went, Alexander Kerensky would have some kind of suggestion for him when the two met the next day. Alexander Kerensky struggled to move through the dispersing crowd. Sir Robert Borden's speech had come to an end, the memorial service was finally over, for real this time, and some had even shed a tear. It was said that close to 500 people had packed the Hotel Zachary's Great Hall for the final funeral reception for Joseph Doherty. What a mark that man had left, and what an example. Kerensky only wished he'd had it so easy. 
He'd never had leverage to begin with, and now he was reduced to spreading rumours and gossip as he bounced from delegation to delegation in the hope that word would get out at his importance, that paranoia would spread and that opportunities would open up. It was tantamount to a pipe dream, but Kerensky knew he had to try. His homeland was in ruins, and the peace conference on which he had placed his hopes had divided itself between two bizarre camps, the IFTA group and its western rival bloc. No help would come from these squabbling factions, and as they squabbled, the Russian people died in vain. Kerensky did his best to hold himself together, but that terrible incident at the Hotel Twomley was like reliving a nightmare. All around him there seemed to be gunshots and death. How could he change this state of affairs? Kerensky didn't know change was possible, but he had to try by knocking on the door of those people who had once been his enemies. Those that had walked past him flashed him dirty or disapproving looks. Did they know his cause to be already lost? While walking up the stairs, out of the great hall of the Hotel Zachary, he imagined what he would say to that German delegation and their Austrian friend. Kerensky was then stopped by a figure at the top of the stairs, just before the entrance to the lobby, by a figure he barely recognised. It was Paderewski, or at least it used to be. The man's eyes were bloodshot and he looked exhausted. Kerensky, my old friend, the pianist sighed. Have you had any luck? So it was true then. News of Kerensky's efforts to achieve something for Russia was spreading. Kerensky could only shake his head even despite this encouragement. Your luck will turn. Keep faith, my friend. How can I keep faith when my country burns? Kerensky blurted out as the Pole led him through the door. At this, Paderewski signalled to his colleagues to wait for him. Alexander, I promise you, Russia will be saved. Those revolutionaries, those anarchists, they will not win. I can't do it, Kerensky felt a lump in his throat. Perhaps this was what happened when one talked to the famous Paderewski. It felt for the first time like he was talking to someone who cared. I don't have anything left. I have nothing to give. You have your two legs, Paderewski said. And you have your voice, yes? What more does a Russian need? Poland and Russia must be allies, and together we will destroy these Bolsheviks forever. Trust me, my friend, we just need some support from the West, then we can live in peace. Oh, Ignatius, Kerensky sighed. The West doesn't care. If they did, I wouldn't have to beg every single resident in Paris like this. It's humiliating. Paderewski's face became more solemn and drawn. These are days of great trial, Minister Chairman, and only the strongest, only the proudest, only the most patriotic will be left standing. I have a question for you. Is that you? When addressing him, Paderewski had used Kerensky's official title. Back when Kerensky had led the provisional Russian government in spring 1917, when the Tsar had been deposed and the Republic proclaimed. God, that seemed like a lifetime ago, but it was all flooding back to him now. The pride he felt when he was confirmed in his position, and him, only a lawyer. I will save Russia, said Kerensky quietly but defiantly. Don't tell me, Minister Chairman, Paderewski said. I'm not the one that needs convincing. It is them. Paderewski pointed to the British who were at that point crossing the street. Kerensky recognised Arthur Fitzwilliam and Sir Alistair Tancred, the two British delegates. What should I do? Kerensky asked. 
and at this Paderewski cleared his throat. The answer is as powerful as it is terrifying. You simply keep on fighting, Mr. Kerensky. You keep on fighting until no Bolsheviks are left alive, and no power remains to stop Russians being free, whatever it takes. And when you come out on the other side, Poland will be waiting, as will all the other nations of the world. Paderewski took Kerensky's hand. Remember, dear friend, Poland and Russia belong together. With that, the Polish pianist had left, walking up the road with his fellow Poles to the hotel where they had been unofficially exiled as they waited for the whole Bronski episode to blow over. Kerensky watched them walk up the road before realising he'd forgotten something. The Germans were waiting for him upstairs, and he was late. Not the greatest impression one could make upon them. Paul von Leto Vorbeck and Horton von Hotzendorf sat at a long table, with Austrian Chancellor Karl Renner beside them. It looked like a business meeting had been meant to take place, but that only the Germans had shown up, leaving a load of empty spaces at this long table, and them sitting at the top. But in reality, von Leto Vorbeck chose this precise layout and this arrangement of seating because he believed it made him seem more intimidating, and he was presently attempting to work his magic on the Austrian Chancellor. If the rumours were true, then Weimar Germany had just been established. What was more, rumours were circulating that the Germans were soon to be welcomed back to Paris to take part personally in the negotiations of the conference. And to top it all off, von Leto Vorbeck, accompanied by his aide von Hotzendorf, were believed to be perfectly positioned to assume this important role. Friedrich Ebert had telegrammed von Leto Vorbeck the previous day, insisting that he and his government were too preoccupied in Weimar to answer Germany's call in Paris, since they continued to hold the fort at home. Ebert had insisted that von Leto Vorbeck was qualified for this position. Ludicrous, von Leto Vorbeck had said, to Horton von Hotzendorf's surprise, before clarifying, As if I need that stable boy's approval. I know how qualified I am for this posting, for I've been preparing for it all my life. Ah, von Hotzendorf thought, there was the Prussian Junker he knew and loved. Well, knew at least. Paul von Leto Vorbeck had acted quickly since learning of this information, though, because the potential empowering of a German delegation meant that it was at least fathomable that the Austrians might also get representation as well in Paris. If this happened, and if the Austrian Chancellor was chosen for this position by Vienna, then von Leto Vorbeck wanted to guarantee that Karl Renner was on his side. The French could protest that this went against the terms of the armistice, but as the previous weeks had shown, anything could happen in Paris, and anything could happen in the future. They were one man down, though. The Russian was late. Kerensky, that hopeless Russian. Von Leto Vorbeck smiled to himself, as he knew full well that he was the dominant personality in the room. He had fought across the African bush just to be considered for such a posting, and now it had finally fallen into his lap. He intended to fight tooth and nail for his beloved Prussia. Horton could represent those other Germans as he saw fit, and Karl Renner could stand for the southern Germans who called themselves Austrians. It was the perfect plan. And then the door burst open, and Paul von Leto Vorbeck swore twice, first at the shock of the moment as Kerensky had burst through the room and created a loud noise, and then he swore again once he looked into Alexander Kerensky's eyes. The Russian minister-chairman looked like a man possessed. Here, indeed, was a man on a mission, a man who could be worked with, a man who could serve as a valuable partner in the new Eastern Europe they were making.
Horton von Hotzendorf had felt the heat of that moment too, and he was pleasantly surprised to see the Russian standing in the doorway. He had always liked Kerensky, and he had long hoped for some sort of useful partnership. The burst of energy which had literally caused Kerensky to burst through the door seemed to indicate that the Russian had emerged from his understandable slump. It can't have been easy to stay upbeat when his home country was in pieces and his potential allies were more interested in fighting over strange treaties. Horton knew that his job would be to balance the more gruff Germania of Paul von Leto Vorbeck, but if he could do that, and if he could represent Germany as a reasonable, peaceable nation to the West, who was only looking out for her fair share, then his name would go down in the histories as the man who saved Germany. He would be like Germany's Talleyrand. By finding some way to surf the momentum and power which von Leto Vorbeck projected, Horton von Hotzendorf imagined he could be very successful indeed. It was known that a great vote was soon to be put to all the delegates, and if this vote was passed, then Germany could have its new constitution and representation at this eventful conference all in the space of a fortnight. There was much to be done, but if Horton dared to dream, he felt that he could envision the recreation of a new holy alliance, with Austria, Germany and Russia all playing their equal parts to destroy Bolshevism and re-establish their power. All that mattered, as Horton understood, was the upcoming vote. And this, history friends and delegates, is where I leave you, and where I hand the reins back. As suggested there at the end, yes, we have a supremely important development for you to ponder over for the next week. Our vote for this week is the potential to radically change the Paris Peace Conference for the better, or depending on how you feel, for the worst. Note that we heard very little from our French delegates this week. That is because, depending on what takes place next week, they'll be having an awful lot to say. So don't worry, French delegates, you'll soon have a chance to speak. Today we saw much of Alexander Kerensky's struggles, struggles which the real-life Alexander Kerensky certainly faced, although in real life Kerensky was not fortunate enough to have a pep talk from Paderewski on the steps of the Hotel Zachary. In any case, this week's vote is as follows, so listen carefully. The Weimar Assembly has just been convened on the 6th of February. How do you respond to this momentous development in German efforts to establish a genuinely democratic regime? The options include, number one, permit history, number two, condemn the act, number three, acclaim German actions, or number four, and most interestingly here, take this opportunity to invite Germany's delegates, in this case, Paul von Leto Vorbeck and Horton von Hotzendorf, to stay at Paris as Germany's official delegation. I'll explain what this means in a minute, but, oh boy, we haven't done anything as game-changing as this. You guys have been changing the game yourselves organically, but this is my first attempt to really put this option over to you. And this is where it gets super interesting. If the vote succeeds, then the real difference between what these two are doing now and what they could be doing is that they will be sitting in with the Big Five, or Big Three as it seems to be in our case, and Germany's influence on the shaping of the Treaty of Versailles will therefore be far more significant. Perhaps you think this would be a terrible wrong, but perhaps you're of the opinion that if Germany had had some say in its construction, then her statesmen never would have rallied so passionately against the Treaty of Versailles in the interwar years. In any case, predictably enough, 
This will greatly anger the French, but since we've super-angered the United States' president and the British Prime Minister already by ruining the League of Nations and mandates, I think it's only fair to make Clemenceau angry too. Of course, let me know what you think by voting in the usual manner, simply by clicking on the link for the Survey Monkey questionnaire, as I send it out to you once this episode is released. Any other business? Well, basically, delegates, we need to make a League of Nations covenant, so everyone get busy in their chat groups, stop bickering like foolish delegates, and see the bigger picture. Stop creating these small potato treaties, and imagine the world which the people of the world want to see you all create. Feel your responsibility, embrace the challenge, and, as generous Dinglebrush would say, try not to put the horse before the cart and... No, no, sorry, that's not right. Anyway, get out there, dear delegates, and make sure you vote before Friday at 9am GMT. That should give everyone plenty of time, but until next time, thanks for listening to episode 4 of the Delegation Game, and I really hope you enjoyed seeing what your avatar got up to this week. Remember, if you want to see your avatar portrayed here, and you want to shape what actually happens in these episodes, simply go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or to find out more, wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game. You can sign up for just $6 a month, punch your passport, get your ticket, stamp your visa, and head over to Paris. Everyone else, I'll see you all back at the Hotel Zachary the same time next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.